Virginia, we won this thing! Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Ballot to Talk About. It is Saturday the 6th of November 2021 and joining me as always my co-host Sam. How are you going Sam? I'm going well. I mean winter is finally upon us in the United Kingdom. It's been immensely cold this week but I'm sure it'll just get worse so I better get used to wearing my big coats. How about you? Well, this is the complete opposite here. It is bright, sunny, and extremely hot. So, you know, I suppose Katy Perry's hot and cold has come to mind in something like that. And before we talk about news about politics this week, and there's a lot of election news to talk about, um, Sam, would you agree with me that the biggest news by far is the fact that Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas has re-entered the top 200 on the US iTunes? You know what that means, right? <laughs> That's always a landmark moment in every calendar because it means that Christmas has officially begun in most people's eyes. Indeed. And this, but anyway, this week we'll be focusing on the recent set of results from the uh, recently in the US, which has sent massive wake up call for incumbent Democrats ahead of midterm elections next year. And in Japan, where Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has coasted to what and it turned out to be like easier than expected re election. So Sam, let's start with Japan first. Could you give the listeners a breakdown in terms of how the parties performed last Sunday? Yeah, so as you said, um, the Liberal Democratic Party and Fumio Kishida have finished this election with 261 seats, which is a majority of seats in the Diet in its own right. But they did lose 23 seats despite getting... 35% of the vote, which is actually a percentage point higher than they received in the last Japanese general election. And alongside their long-term coalition partner or informal alliance partner, Kameto, who got 32 seats, which was an increase of three, um, the governing arrangement in Japan has more than continued to solidify their grip on Japanese politics. And in fact, the target for an absolute majority that Fumio Kishida was eyeing up, which was 261 seats, the LDP have achieved that alone. And the combined um, 293 seats that they have between them is well above the absolute majority the government was seeking. And I think it's fair to say that for the main opposition party, the Constitutional Democrats, it was a very disappointing night because they actually fell backwards to 96 seats, losing 13. And the other opposition parties that were in an informal arrangement with the Constitutional Democratic Party also had a pretty disappointing night. A series of left-wing parties, the Communists, the Social Democrats, have the remaining 14 seats. And I think in the opposition, one of the biggest surprises was the Japanese Innovation Party, or what was formerly known as Nippon Ishin no Kai, ended up on 41 seats, which is an increase of 30 and 14% of the vote, which propelled them into the third largest party within the Japanese parliament, winning almost every seat in Osaka. In fact, the only seats in Osaka the party didn't win 
were seats they didn't even stand in. So they completely swept the board, you know, Osaka in the seats that they were putting themselves up for. So really, it's a, a good night, it seems, for Fumio Kishida, especially considering where the approval ratings were at when Yoshihide Suga left the position of Prime Minister, leaving Fumio Kishida with very little time to revive those fortunes in time for the elections. And all in all, it seems that it's a very disappointing night for opposition parties who thought that their informal arrangement might put them in a position to challenge, not for the premiership necessarily, but certainly for denying the Liberal Democratic Party an outright majority. So, Chern, first thing I wanted to ask you was, do you think this result strengthens the position of Fumio Kishida? Uh, yes, but before I briefly talk about it, I would like to mention something you mentioned earlier, which was the fact that the LDP increased its share of the vote, but lost seats, which is something which um, I, I think deserves a little bit of explanation. And the reason is because in many of the constituencies, and it's something we flagged in the preview, the number of um, seats that the LDP had uh, were facing an opposition-coordinated candidate. In other words, there's only one anti-LDP candidate. And that had an impact on the results because the LDP in this election, the 2021 election, held 189 constituencies. Yes, it's by far the biggest amount compared to all the other parties, but it's significantly down compared to the 218 they had in the 2017 election. So most of the damage to the LDP was done by the fact that it lost a lot of seats in the constituency base. And as we mentioned before in our preview, the nature of the proportional representation element of Jap Japanese politics, the fact that it's not a corrective system, has meant that the increase in proportionality has been unable to make up for that fact, really. Uh, so as a result, that's why that despite the increase in the vote, the LDP has lost seats overall. And one of the seats lost was in Kanagawa, where um, the Kanagawa's first district, which took out the LDP Secretary General, Akira Amari, actually, which is often seen as the number two post in Japanese politics. Um, we should say as well, and I think that gives a clue to the fact that Fumio Kishida himself has now an ability to choose his own appointment. And there's Toshihimi Mokidi, the current foreign minister, will be the Secretary General, the new Secretary General. And he, crucially, is not a close, as close an ally of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and Taro Aso or the conservative wing of the party as compared to Akira Amari, who lost his constituency seat. So that, I think, is a good indication of how Fumio Kishida has been able to insert somebody who is slightly more independent of some of the goals of LDP's past and attempt to make this within his own image. In addition, I think the fact that the party lost seats overall has given him the chance to say to his party members that some reform is needed, but because we did a lot better than hold our own, we can actually with 261 control the parliamentary majorities. I am the person in charge to move forward and reform the LDP. Don't you think so, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I think the final point you made there is particularly important because I think this set of results serves two purposes for Kashida because he did well enough to secure his own future as Prime Minister because he certainly did better than some opinion polls were expecting. But I think the party overall did badly enough that they could see 
um, that some of the reforms that Fumio Kishida was hoping to be able to instill upon the party are necessary because the party did do worse than the heights it achieved under Shinzo Abe before Yoshihide Suga. So it's definitely a backslide from the lofty heights that the LDP have achieved in the past, but it's a strong enough performance, I think, given the contextual factors of this election, that Fumio Kishida can be secure in his job as prime minister, at least for the time being. Well, the question is, though, and I think this is the thing that we talked about, was if you recall, Sam, our discussion about the fact that the opposition was hoping to use this election as momentum for the upper house elections that the that could place take place next year, and that could potentially deny and uh, the, if you take away the LDP's majority, there it will so give a good momentum for the L, for the opposition for the sending to the next Japanese general election. Now, I would argue the tables have turned so much so that we're expecting another bout in fighting, thanks to the leader of the Constitutional Democratic Party, Yukoyo Idano, resigning. We can expect another round of opposition in fighting heading into the upper house elections where the LDP now strengthened will go into it feeling much more confident. So actually, ironically, there are chances to potentially, won't you agree, Sam, that Fumio Kishida could break that so-called one-year curse on Japanese prime ministers, isn't it? It certainly seems that way. I mean, I think the opposition are going to have a difficult time if they're wanting to be successful in these upper house elections, because I think one thing this election proved is that even an informal alliance between opposition parties is not the kind of unity that is required of the opposition to do well in Japanese politics. Because the key difference between now and 2009, despite the fact that there were similarities in terms of the popularity of the governing party, because the approval ratings of the LDP as an institution were low going into this election. But the key difference between 2009 and now is that in 2009, the opposition were flying under one banner. This time, the opposition were flying under their own banners, but with electoral pacts within seats. And because of the reputation that some parties within that opposition arrangement have, it was very difficult to capture swing voters. Whereas in 2009, under a new banner, they were able to do that. Well, I'll give you two examples. For example, this Constitutional Democratic Party and the Communists often had an alliance between each other. And the LDP loves nothing than to beat up the Communist Party. And by coincidence, the CDP doesn't it by teaming up with the, with the Communists in such an alliance. So that became an possible electoral albatross that hanged around its hat. Yeah, you know, I, I listened this week back to when we talked about Japan for the first time, when the Olympics were just beginning when the Tokyo mayoral elections had just taken place. And both of us flagged up that within Tokyo, one thing that worked really well for the opposition is that they teamed up with the communists in Tokyo. But both of us said at that time that that would be electoral suicide on the national scene. And that's exactly what they did. And in the end, it did seem that teaming up with the communists or at least having an electoral arrangement with them was a huge problem on the ground for the Constitutional Democrats. And I would just like to bring out the smaller Democratic for the People's Party, which actually openly taught not one of confrontation with the LDP, but uh, cooperation. So that suggests it's a very different message here trying to take to the, uh, to the Japanese people. And I think as well, that kind of suggests the, the 
fundamental problem for the opposition is no matter the cleavages, no matter the social issues as policies that could divide, be it on you know, what we would think as social issues, for example, such as whether Japanese women can retain their own last name, which is actually quite a controversial topic, LGBT rights. In the end, voters in Japan care about um, who is best to deliver a strong economy and stability. And unfortunately for the opposition, that answer is usually laid with the LDP, thanks to its decades-long track record and, you know, the inherent weaknesses of social democratic parties as well, I feel, don't you think? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's a lot of question, policy questions that come up from, from this election, not least these kind of social issues that Kashida certainly was on the more... Um, conservative wing of the LDP leadership election about. So it seems that some of those social policy questions have been settled. But there's a few foreign policy questions that this election certainly brings up. So if we're talking about one of Shinzo Abe's key political objectives from his time as Prime Minister, which was to amend Japan's pacifist constitution, do we think that the age of Kashida will see any change in that given this election result? That is a very interesting question because um, the what unknown of this factor is two things. The, the, the first of all is the fact that um, the Japanese Innovation Party, which says swept Osaka, is in favor of constitutional um, amendments and, in, and to be held concurrently with the upper house elections next year. So a lot of conservative nationalists would suddenly think, well, this is certainly an opportunity, isn't it? Given how closely we performed, we, we did in those elections. But nonetheless, it was still fall short because you need a two-thirds majority to get it through the lower house and just the LDP in itself and the Japanese Innovation Party where 302 seats, which is less than the 310 or so that you would need for a two-thirds majority. But then you think, well, why not? the usual coalition parties are Cometo. And therein lies irony that actually Cometo itself is much more nervous about amending Jap Japan's pacifist constitution. So the reality is, I don't think the numbers are there, frankly. And in order to win such a referendum, would you take a chance? Because the polls are quite divided on this issue. Although it's a dream for a lot of nationalists, do you want to potentially put it to a referendum and then have it rejected and put off the back burner for another generation? I don't know. So the annoying thing for the LDP is that they come so close, ironically, in this result. But I don't think all the ducks are quite lined up on their agenda. But nonetheless, this was a much better... Certainly, I think that this topic will come up potentially much more often in the next term of parliament with these set of results than I thought that they would have, to be honest. Yeah, you brought up how this particular policy is something where the Innovation Party and the governing Liberal Democrats could see eye to eye and work together on. I'm just curious to if you have any opinions on what role you think the Innovation Party will play in this parliament, because they are a member of the opposition, but they're not the kind of opposition party that are going to be working with the Constitutional Democrats to necessarily dislodge the Liberal Democratic Party. So what role do you think they'll play? I think it's a very good question because they are, their role is sort of a populist centre-right party. And 
one in which potentially, as you said, they swept Osaka. But one thing that they have failed to do is that they have failed to um, solidify their base within Osaka. They've had a series of yo-yo election results, up, both up and down. This is clearly an up version. So the question is, where do you go in that case? This could be an election where if you presented a centre-right strong alternative, like the Japanese Innovation Party, with disaffection with the national LDP, with disaffection with the traditional opposition parties, you therefore turn to the Japanese Innovation Party. So are these results just an outlet of dissatisfaction with the LDP? Which, if that is the case, it will lead itself to potentially less cooperation with the government. And, and we often talked about the fact that populist parties tend to do better sitting outside the government for potentially supporting them on some issues, potentially on the constitutional amendment stuff, some of the policies that they can stay outside of oppose in some sense and support those that they like. I think that's more of a role in which they would play, somewhat at a distance, but providing more support potentially than uh, the Constitutional Democratic Party would. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting theory and I, I completely agree because I think one takeaway from this election, given the history of the Innovation Party's yo-yo election results, is that this is not the beginning of a, a significant challenge to the Liberal Democratic Party on both the left and the right in terms of challenging them for government. I mean, it might be, but history would tell us otherwise. But it was just interesting to see that there is now a sizable proportion of the electorate who seem disenfranchised with the Liberal Democratic Party, but at the same time not wanting to vote for a different government, but wanting to express their disenfranchisement in a different way. And the Innovation Party was well positioned to absorb that. So it's kind of like 2009, isn't it? Where you, in Osaka, where you had to have the right opposition party at the right time in order to successfully, and they did very successfully, sweep Osaka as well. The only problem is that they're an Osaka-based party. They have no, like, um, they have not expanded out nationwide. And until they solved that, I think the LDP really abscond in their relative electoral security, won't they? They will, exactly. And I think one of the big takeaways from this election is just is just the point I made towards the start of this discussion, which is that if the opposition is going to be successful, like they were in 2009 in the future, I don't think this new strategy of um, being cooperative within certain seats and standing down candidates is going to be the way to do that. Um, I think we're probably going to have to look at a situation where the opposition is under one banner and goes into the election as a single party if that kind of cooperation can be agreed. Because one thing's for certain, I think the Japanese markets were very concerned about a situation in which the government didn't have a majority because we saw by the end of the day on the 31st of October, the markets closed at 2.6% higher than they opened that day because there was an immense amount of concern that there would be a relief package that needed to be inflated to appease the left and be able to pass it through Parliament. And in the end, Kashida doesn't necessarily have to do that. Just a couple of questions on the opposition, because I think the big surprise to me was how poor the Constitutional Democratic Party performed. Because I remember when the exit poll first came out, when I was following the results, it did put the LDP potentially around 230 seats. And it put the opposition seat, Constitutional Democratic Party, as high as 140 seats. So it suggests that that was the big, the big 
where the underestimate and the overestimate was, was within the two big parties. Sam, what are the factors that potentially why, explain why the party lost seats? Because frankly, I did not expect them to lose seats, didn't you? No, I mean, it was, we, were, we were both talking when we did our preview of this election a couple of weeks ago that it was almost certain that the Constitutional Democratic Party were going to improve on their position. And actually, they fell backwards. But I think one clue to look at is that in our preview, we did talk about just how close loads of these constituency seats were going to be. I think I said, I cited a number, something like 63 constituency seats projected to be within what you would call in the polling world a, a margin of error. Um, and the unfortunate situation for the opposition in this case was that a few thousand votes could change all of these 63 seats into seats won by the Liberal Democratic Party and, and in equal measure could have gone the other way. So we could be in a situation right now where this election was only 10,000, tens of thousands of votes away from being a real success for the Constitutional Democratic Party. But because of the electoral system, because of the fact that the proportional element is not a top up and is just the proportional the proportion of second votes that go to the parties which the liberal democratic party traditionally do very well in because they didn't pick up these constituency seats that were so close they were left with actually less seats than they went into the election with I also point out the two factors that could potentially explain why the opposition did badly. First of all, is the Japanese Trade Union Confederation, which is Rango, which has been traditionally uncomfortable with the alliance between the CDP and the communists. And I think the backbone for any successful centre-left campaign is support from the trade union movement. If you can't even get universal support, you're in for a bit of trouble, aren't you, in the ballot box, isn't it? So I should say as well that Rango has had um, is not as strongly affiliated with the centre-left as potentially the Trade Union Congress is with the UK Labour Party, for example. In 2014, it did endorse the LDP candidate Yuichi Masuzo for the Tokyo governor election. So there have been occasions where it has crossed so-called party divides and supported what is traditionally seen as centre-right campaign. And in tradition, and don't forget as well, if one month of Fumio Kishida has seen a lot of talk, potentially what we call the new capitalism, if you recall some of his earlier interviews, and trying to increase wages as well, which is, again, synonymous with many centre-right parties parking their tanks firmly on grounds which is traditionally centre-left policy, isn't it? So that oxygen potentially of corporates versus workers has really been blurred by the LDP's ability, shape-shifting ability, like the Conservatives in the UK, to shift their policies on wage on wage policy in this case to part traditionally on what used to be centre-left territory. And I don't think that could be discounted. Secondly, as well, turnout. Now, turnout did go up, but only up to 55%, 2% increase. In 2009, when it won government, it was 69%. So frankly, turnout was nowhere near enough to dent the LDP's hopes of holding on. What do you think of these two factors, Sam? I think the first factor particularly is really important because the policies pursued by Fumio Kishida were not outwardly exceptionally conservative. And I think that is 
helpful in a world where there's a lot of opposition or potential opposition voters who feel discomfort with the communists being part of that arrangement. So if you were a more moderate person who may have considered voting for the opposition, you wouldn't feel completely uncomfortable with voting for the Liberal Democratic Party because of the ideological package they were presenting to the electorate this time around. And I think the turnout point also, I think we're going to be talking about when we talk about the US elections as well, because we know that in lots of countries, the UK is the same, a lot of Western European democracies are the same as well, that the more reliable voters to turn out are the voters who sit more on the center right of the ideological spectrum, older voters, um, people in more privileged positions tend to turn out more reliably. So if you have a turnout that's only that's not particularly impressive and certainly doesn't reach the lofty heights of 2009, then really it's going to be difficult for the opposition to squeeze their vote as much as they need to if they're going to perform really well. Indeed. And we do know as well that, as we flagged earlier, that um, with a new LDP Secretary General, um, Motogi, do, taking up his post, Fumio Kishida is the acting foreign minister, but there will have to be a cabinet reshuffle. And Fumio Kishida will also be, this week, uh, will be elected once again Prime Minister in a diet vote as well. Do follow us for potential changes in the cabinet and his premiership in the days and weeks to come. So, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. We're now going to move on to talk about Tuesday's off-year United States elections, which on the whole proved to be a good night for the Republican Party. In fact, it looks like they are going to win the gubernatorial election race in Virginia, with Governor Glenn Youngkin taking up his position. And in New Jersey, despite the fact that Democratic Governor Phil Murphy is going to hold on to his office, it's going to certainly be a lot tighter than expected and a lot tighter than the presidential election in both of these states as well. And not only that, further down the ballot was also a disappointing night for Democrats. In Virginia, they lost the lieutenant governor race, they lost the attorney general race, and lost control of the Virginia House of Delegates. And in other states around the country, we're losing local mayoral races in Seattle, in Long Island, and had some upsets within other local elections that, despite being held by Democrats, were not held in the most routine of fashions. Indeed. And I think a good place to start, Sam, is based on these results. Which results do you think were the most, which state do you think was the most horrifying from the Democratic perspective? Was it New Jersey or Virginia, in your opinion? I think Virginia was the most horrifying because it actually changed hands, because it was, because there is now full Republican control in the state of Virginia in terms of the elections that were held on Tuesday, because they lost the three top races in the executive and lost control of the lower House of Delegates in Virginia. I'm going to come on later to talk about why I think New Jersey maybe does seem more problematic in terms of the trajectory of the vote, but certainly in the headline votes, I think Virginia was the most disappointing. And 
there was a lot of expectation that this election was going to be close because the off-year Virginia and New Jersey elections tend to be close. In fact, Phil Murphy in New Jersey is only the second person since 1989 to win an election in Virginia or New Jersey as a candidate of the same party as the president. So these elections are traditionally quite close. But I think given the polarised environment, people were expecting that nonetheless, the Democrats' vote might decrease, but they they would just hang on in the end. And unfortunately, in Virginia, they didn't manage to achieve that. And let's talk about Virginia in a bit more detail. So just to round up the results, uh, as you mentioned, Governor Glenn Youngkin has won 51% of the vote, uh, 50.7 to be a bit more exact. And Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, won 48.5%. Um, down ballot, as you mentioned, uh, Winston Sears will become the first female and the first woman of colour elected lieutenant governor. Um, she won again 50.8 to Hyla Hilera's 49%. And Mark Herring failed to win another term as attorney general, losing in a closer race to Jason Morales, 50.5 uh, to 49.4. Jason Morales becomes the first Cuban-American and Hispanic to be elected statewide. So actually, ironically, the Republican ticket in this case is much more diverse than a Democratic ticket, with two positions, the Attorney Generalship, both creating history, and Winston Sears, you know, creating gender and racial history. So that's something a little bit unique to what we usually find as a party creating history there. But Sam, let's dive into these Virginia results in a little bit more detail. What was the factors that could explain why Glenn Yalkin overturned a 10% Biden lead in the 2020 presidential election and a 2017 8% lead for the then Democratic candidate, Ralph Northam and current incumbent, a current, current Virginia governor incumbent. Was it um, the Republicans picking up Biden voters or did they juice rural turnout up to more 2020 levels than the Democratic opponent? I think this is a really difficult question to answer because, well, where I want to begin is I think turnout plays a role here because you and I both know that the exit polls released by polling companies in the US are very different to exit polls released in other countries. And in fact, a lot of the time, the information they present is not particularly helpful. But I think one of the exit polls that came out of Virginia was really interesting and tells a big story here, which is so they asked the question of who did you vote for in 2020 and the percentage in Virginia said 46% voted for Biden and 46% voted for Trump. So in terms of the electorate that was voting on Tuesday, they were equally split on Biden and Trump in 2020 if they recalled their vote correctly, which is a very different electorate than went to the polls last year where and, and the team on 538, who I know both of us listened to, talked about this because Biden won that state by 10%. So to be in a world now where the electorate taking part in the ballot on Tuesday were equally split on Biden and Trump in 2020 seems to suggest that this was just a much more Republican electorate this time around. Undoubtedly, I think there were people who voted for Joe Biden who voted for Glenn Youngkin this time around. Of course there was because a 10% swing is a very hard thing to combat. But for sure, I think the overall turnout of Biden voters from 2020 was a lot lower than Trump voters. 
So I think we can, I can help buttress your final point with some statistics by looking at Loudoun County, which is in northern, the northern Virginia suburbs. And we talk about a changing Virginia. Loudoun County is often talked about as the county to look at. It's seen a lot more DC professionals going to the eastern part of the county, you know, which has helped transform its politics. In the 2020 presidential election, Biden won 62% of the vote to Trump's 37. In this election, McAuliffe only won 55% of the vote and Glenn Youngkin won 44% of the vote. So we went from a nearly two to one margin to an 11 point margin, which in a large county is quite a big turnaround, isn't it, Sam? Would you not agree? And that suggests that potentially some of these college educated voters who were absolutely disgusted with Donald Trump have moved back towards the party. Does it suggest potentially moving forward for the Democrats that it'd be worrying that what we thought was a component part of their base only really lent them votes because of Donald Trump? And now in a non-Donald Trump-led era, that could cause them real backlash and damage moving forward? Quite possibly, but I think there's two things to remember here. One is it is looking extremely likely that the next presidential candidate for the Republican Party will be Donald Trump. So that kind of world in which the Republican Party is not led by Donald Trump certainly seems a couple of electoral cycles away, in my opinion. The alternative here, I think, as well, is that these off-year elections, as we're going to talk about persistently, have a record of being incredibly close and incredibly negative towards the party who controls the White House. And in this case, the Democratic Party control not only the White House, but a trifecta of Congress as well. So the resentment against the party in government is particularly strong. So I think one key lesson for these off-year elections is not to draw um, too big a conclusions away from them because they're two quite specific states. Virginia especially is a state which absorbs a lot more national news than other states because Virginia is home or is right next door to Washington DC. So their local newspaper is the Washington Post. So this is a very different politically engaged audience. Um, So I think drawing these conclusions is, is a mistake, but that should be met with the asterisks of There is clearly a potential here for candidates who are not closely aligned with Trump or potentially even a presidential candidate who operates a very different style from Donald Trump could be quite competitive in areas like Loudoun County in Virginia, where we thought that the Democrats were building quite a secure base. And in Virginia, that might not take that presidential candidate across the line. But in other states, in the Midwest, it might be a different story. But, you know, to show you what a change, but nonetheless, the fact that Loudoun County remained Democrat in this election, um, Glenn Youngkin has become the first the Republican governor to be elected uh, since 1969 without carrying L- Loudoun County. And in nearby Prince William County, yes, the Republican candidate did do five points better. And again, it is part of that Northern Virginia suburbs, which we talked about and home to a lot of these college educated voters. The fact that the Republican won the gubernatorial office uh, is the first time that that has happened since 1960 presidential election. So it's been a long, so a lot of these trends that we talked about potentially at the presidential level still applies at state level. 
I would like to take you about the point of opposition because I think that is very important to explaining these results as well. And I think it also shows you that like what we mentioned earlier, the one problem with the Democrats is that their base with rural voters shows no sign of the hemorrhaging we've seen in that area. There's no, no sign of being arrested at this moment. And a very good answer can come in Russell County, which is located right in the southwest of Virginia, actually very close to the West Virginia border, actually. In the presidential election, Trump won 81% of the vote here, and Biden won 17%. The 2017 governor election saw Gillespie 77%, Northam 22%. Well, in 2021, Sam, I can tell you that Glenn Youngkin won 85% of the vote in this one county. And Terry McAuliffe only won 15% in this one county. So Glenn Youngkin's got a bigger margin than Donald Trump and only finished about 2,000 or so votes behind that 2020 presidential election result, which saw a record turnout. So that is, I think, key to explaining when you read out those statistics, 85% in the rural county. You know, in the past, Democrats used to run up the scores in this rural county. How politics have changed, isn't it? Yeah, and I think one key takeaway here is that the turnout in this Virginia election was particularly strong for this kind of off-year election that is not even held within the same year as the official midterms. And one stat I did read is that Glenn Youngkin managed to pick up 87% of the Trump vote, which in an off-year election is extraordinarily high to pick up nearly 90% of the vote of a presidential candidate who actually outperformed himself um, in 2016 in terms of the Trump vote in 2020. And Glenn Youngkin actually got 500,000 more votes than Edgar Gillespie got in um, 2017. And even though Terry McAuliffe nearly got 200,000 more votes than Ralph Northam, this just shows just how much of the turnout was juiced by Glenn Youngkin when a Democratic candidate outperformed a previous Democratic candidate who had won this election quite substantially in 2017. And let's talk about the Democrats for a little bit. We focus a lot on their problems with rural areas, as I mentioned earlier, that hemorrhaging which doesn't appear to have stopped. Do you think the Trump card plays any role or their focus, particularly in the end of the campaign on Donald Trump, turn out to backfire potentially by reminding these voters potentially of the fact that Trump is no longer president, but among his base who have largely forgotten about him because he's no longer in the Oval Office, it therefore couldn't juice turn out effectively? Yeah, I think it did prove to be a bit of a problem for the Democrats because I just don't think people make those connections anymore because... In the grand scheme of things, Donald Trump has been fairly quiet in the last year. And if you weren't someone who was in, an intense observer of politics like you and I are, then you probably wouldn't even notice that Donald Trump is still playing any kind of a role in the Republican Party at all. In fact, in terms of Glenn Youngkin's campaign, they tried to distance themselves from him as well as Jack Cittarelli did in New Jersey. And I think his role here has been very different, which is that he, the Democrats have reminded people that Donald Trump and the Republican Party are still sort of in tandem, which has been good for juicing the Trump turnout for Trump voters in Virginia. But he's kept enough of a distance from Glenn Youngkin 
that Glenn Youngkin has been able to pick up voters who were disenfranchised with Trump as well. So I think for Glenn Youngkin, he has managed to get a good turnout from both people who are in favour of Donald Trump and people who are not. Um, and I think that has been a, a good outcome for the Republican Party in managing to simultaneously balance Trump voters with never Trumpers at the same time. Well, the question is now is whether this coalition could hang on for A, the midterms, or more crucially for them, I suspect, the 2024 presidential election. And only time will tell is the answer to that. Let's move on to New Jersey, Sam, where uh, Governor, Democratic Governor Phil Murphy has become the first Democratic governor to be re-elected since 1977, securing 50.9% of the vote um, compared to Jack Cittarelli's 48.3%. But Sam, frankly, these numbers were a lot closer. And this seems to be, unlike Virginia, to be a massive fail for the opinion polls, first off, isn't it? It really is. And I think it's a massive failure for campaign data collection in general, because most people hadn't really been paying attention to New Jersey at all. The amount of reliable opinion polling coming out of New Jersey was incredibly low. And it struck me that the Democrats' national campaign was almost entirely focused on the state of Virginia, whereas actually, they were not that far away from also losing New Jersey, which if they had lost New Jersey, would have been a huge shock compared to Virginia, I think. And I think it's also worth noting here that Phil Murphy had a larger swing against him than Terry McAuliffe had in, in Virginia as the Democratic candidate. So in terms of hemorrhaging votes, New Jersey was far worse for the Democrats than Virginia. Indeed. But nonetheless, Sam, from, I'm intrigued to hear this. Why do you think there's an element in the New Jersey results that's potentially good news for the Democrats? I think it all comes from the first stats you read out, which is that Phil Murphy is the first re-elected Democrat since 1977, which in itself is an achievement. And he's the only, only the second candidate of the presidential party to win one of these elections since 1989. So both of those are great achievements. And it also comes from Phil Murphy being one of the most progressive Democratic governors that are in office at the moment. And for him to be able to win this election in an environment which is clearly a more Republican-leaning national environment now, and in a world where Democrats have a trifecta, I think this is not all bad news, but given the swing against the Democrats, in a state that Joe Biden won by 14%. Um, there, you can't parade this as a great achievement for the Democratic Party, but I think there are glimmers of good news in the New Jersey result in particular. And from Governor Phil Murphy's point of view, this is my good news, is that A, he maintained a trifecta, which is going to make passing legislation even easier. And I suspect he'll be quietly celebrating the defeat of one Democrat in particular, that of State Senate President Walter Sweeney. I'm not sure if you heard this story, Sam, but he is the State Senate President. He lost his seat to a Republican candidate who's a truck driver who spent $153 on his campaign. I have never heard, Sam, of somebody who has upset the odds against what is the man often seen as the oil machine and of the, you know, one of the big beasts of New Jersey democratic politics, really. And he's often been a thorn in 
Phil Murphy's attempts to introduce more progressive legislation. So the fact that he still has control of both houses and has seen one of the biggest irritants to his agenda gone, I think he'd be quietly celebrating that. However, the point I would like to make of this is that South Jersey could prove problematic for the Democrats moving forward. South Jersey is very different from North Jersey in the same way that Northern Virginia is very different from Southwest Virginia. South Jersey is much more working class compared to the North, North Jersey, which is very much influenced by New York City. In South Jersey, for example, uh, the Republicans won two, two counties from 2017, Atlantic County by over double digit margins, 56% to 44%. And I would also like to bring up Cumberland County, again, won by over a double digit margin, similar about 56% to 43%. Both counties were held in by the Democrats in 2017. And presidential election wise, the Democrats won both counties by six to seven points. It suggests that these working class voters potentially in even these blue states have also started to move away from the Democrats. And we see and that could be a potential problem moving forward. It might not be a problem in presidential elections where the, the area starts around Trenton and the northern of New Jersey has so much bigger population to overwhelm these areas. But in the lower turnout governor elections, for example, it damn nearly caused Phil Murphy an upset, isn't it? Certainly. I mean, one question I did have for you is that in 2009, which was the last time we had a first term Democratic president um, going into these kind of off year elections, they saw both New Jersey and Virginia fall to the Republicans. And then the year after that, the midterms were an absolute disaster for the Democratic Party. Do you think that alarm bells will be ringing in terms of the midterms that might be taking place next year? And do you think the house races in Virginia and New Jersey could be a lot closer than house races in those two states have been in the past few cycles? The simple answer this is worrying for House Democrats in particular. Both the Virginia 2nd, held by Elaine Eura, and Abigail Spanberger's Virginia 7th are both now in Trump territory, and now in territory that voted for the Republicans, actually. So that is particularly worrying as well. So on the plus side, there's two seats lost if we translate these results, which we know that is imperfect translation onto what will happen next year. And also as well, the next thing that the, the, the missing carrot in this is that in New Jersey, that the Democrats will look upon these results potentially and might decide to not be so aggressive in redistricting, trying to create new Democratic seats, but rather show up some of their incumbents potentially. And therefore, the net gains the Democrats could be looking into New Jersey in terms of, in terms of the number of seats, House seats, could potentially be a lot less than what they were anticipating because of the need to show up their incumbents now. So I think those things can make the whole of the house much more precarious. And I think one of the things that has still remained with me is that fact that exit polls showed that this electorate was a 46-46 in Virginia Biden-Trump electorate, which is totally different from a presidential election. And that was suggesting that's a and that has to be continually reinforced that the midterm electorate will be very different from a presidential electorate. And in the era in which Democrats are the, in government, they hold all the levers of power, they certainly need to be aware of much more enthusiastic Republican voters and try and do something over the next year, which admittedly is not a lot of time. 
Do you think, therefore, Sam, that those these results in Virginia and New Jersey can I explain why the Democrats, less than twenty, just over the last twenty four hours, passed the infrastructure bill, which is the first time in decades infrastructure bill has been passed and has provided a timeline for passing their much more controversial Build Back Better Act through the House of Representatives. Yeah, I think to be honest, Terry McAuliffe will be shaking his head in despair because he has been asking the the congressional Democrats over the past few weeks to get this act passed before election day in Virginia, because he perceived that, well, he believed that if that act were passed, he would have much more effective talking points on the campaign to sell the Democratic ticket. Now, I'm not entirely sure that passing this act would have been a silver bullet for Terry McAuliffe on election day, but it certainly seems exceptionally bizarre to me that they've chosen the very end of the week in which there were two quite significant gubernatorial elections held to finally pass an act that the Senate passed back in August. Um, I mean, now that we have this legislation, I think the midterms might be less of an immediate concern for the Democrats, because at least you can go into those midterms knowing that you have passed a flagship spending bill whilst you have a trifecta. And whether it wins you votes or not, at least you have used the trifecta to pass significant legislation. But it certainly seems bizarre to me that they didn't pass this within a campaign where passing such a large piece of legislation, such a meaningful piece of legislation, um, which they just couldn't use in the campaign at all. And crucially, one that was not only popular with voters, but bipartisan. 13 Republicans voted for the infrastructure bill, you know, and that's a number in which I was really surprised, actually, because I thought there will be a couple of Democratic factors. There were six in total, mainly from the squad, who I think were mainly doing not because they opposed infrastructure building, but because the fact the Build Back Better Act faces a much more troublesome period getting through the Senate in its current form. And Biden's been a president of, you know, reaching across the aisle and pulling voters together. That's his whole USP for running for president. And, you know, the fact that that took place, you know, probably a week before it should have done politically still uh, surprises me. It's been a fascinating discussion of uh, US elections and US politics in general. But I think the one thing we would like to talk about was that this uh, was to talk about a series of measures that potentially um, talk to an interesting trend. And I think this is a good point to end on is to look at some of the other races that have um, taken place. So Seattle elected a Republican attorney, Seattle, which is, you know, ultra-liberal city, over, and the reason why she was elected, Anne Davidson, was over, potentially over the policing issue, because she faced Nicole Thomas Kennedy, who wanted to abolish the police. Buffalo Democratic candidate, India Walton, an avowed socialist and a strong supporter of defund the police, lost to a right-in candidacy led by a predecessor and moderate mayor, Byron Brown, and in Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was murdered, ballot measure two, which would have replaced the city's police department with a public safety department, that as part of that um, ballot measure would have removed the citywide mandate over a minimum number of police officers, which would have drastically reduced the number of police on the streets. So Sam, what's next for the defund the police movement and for progressives in general? Because not only had they wider lost governor elections in Virginia and taken to the wire in New Jersey. But in terms of their policy priorities in democratic cities, they have lost out, haven't they? 
They have, if you look at these results. But I think one thing to re-emphasize is that we can't draw too many conclusions in terms of the Democratic Party's trajectory because this electorate, on the surface, was much more Republican than a presidential electorate or even, I think, a midterm electorate because off-year elections are very specific um, occasions where the national media might not be talking about them so much. Probably a lot of voters within these areas didn't even know they were necessarily happening and they didn't coincide with a significant legislation higher up the ballot that in itself motivates turnout. I mean, that said, there is clearly some alarm going to be drawn from these series of results, which seems to suggest that one of the flagship policies of the progressive movement is not particularly popular. But if we were talking about this being a doomsday scenario for the progressives, I'd just like to once again point out that one of the most progressive democratic governors on the scene at the moment did manage to win an election in an environment where the Republicans are certainly on the march. So I think there's two sides to this coin and I'm going to be awaiting next year to draw more clearer conclusions about where the democratic base actually is. So Sam, shall we set that clock to about 363 days and start counting down? Absolutely. I mean, the US is great for us because they seem to never be outside of election cycles. Absolutely. And that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Join us again next week when we'll be previewing the upcoming midterm elections in a country we haven't talked about at all, which is Argentina. So stay tuned for that. We are very excited about it. And as always, we will continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ballot underscore talk. And do leave us a rating or review, or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we will speak to you soon.